This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Bernstein, Associate Professor of History in the Department of History at Lewis and Clark College. Dr. Bernstein is the author of Modern Passings, Death Rites, Politics, and Social Change in Imperial Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2006, as well as Who's Fuji? Religion, Region, and State in the Fight for a National Symbol, published in the Spring 2008 issue of Monumenta Nipponica. Dr. Bernstein, thank you for talking with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. In your first book, Modern Passings, you talk about funerary practices and how the Meiji Restoration impacts death in Japan. Could you elaborate on that for us a bit? Right. Well, some dramatic changes occurred in the first few years of the new regime, while others took hold more gradually over the decades that followed the Restoration. And I think what's important to keep in mind when talking about funerary practices, whether in Japan or anywhere else, is that at their core, they generally function to establish continuity in the face of loss. Because they create links between the past, present, and future, people are, people are usually not all that eager to change them, and they tend to turn to long-standing traditions. So studying these practices, I think, is an especially effective way to see how people try to hold on to the past amid rapid change. And of course, change does happen, but people often make or accept alterations to certain elements of tradition in order to preserve other elements. Now, this happens to all sorts of traditions, but again, death practices throw this phenomenon of embracing the new in order to hold on to the old and particularly sharp relief. So in the years immediately following the Restoration, it's important to keep in mind that the policy of the new regime was tied to an anti-Buddhist pro-Shinto agenda of nativists. In the Charter Oath of 1868, which enunciates basic principles of the new regime, there's a line about cutting off the evil practices of the past. And in the eyes of nativists, the evil customs or evil practices of the past were Buddhist ones. They were considered foreign, even though Buddhism had been around in Japan for over a thousand years and had dominated death rites in that time. Now, as part of their agenda to Shintoize Japan, the nativists who were either in government or had the ear of sympathetic uh, officials, tried to promote something in place of Buddhist funerals, and that was the Shinto funeral. And here I think you see the invention of tradition in its purest form, that is, creation of a tradition that is essentially new, but has this aura of antiquity, because the Shinto funeral, again, was part of this effort to supposedly return Japan to a pure Shinto state before the introduction of Buddhism. I think it's important to note, though, that although this campaign to promote Shinto funerals did have an immediate 
impact in certain places, especially in places where village leaders were sympathetic to the nativist cause and therefore really pushed for the conversion of villagers to Shinto. But in fact, there was a lot of resistance that because it was thought that the kami, the gods, should not come in contact with death pollution in any way, that it seemed very odd to people, in fact, to adopt something called a a Shinto funerals. And so despite government efforts in the first few years of the major restoration to push Shinto funerals, they, they really ultimately failed. And you don't see many Shinto funerals in Japan today. Buddhism still really dominates, actually. So there's a case where Shinto dreams crashed into a Buddhist reality, you could say, and they failed. Another policy that went into effect that ultimately failed, but actually for a short time at least, had a major impact on what people did, was a ban on cremation that was instituted in 1873, but was repealed in 1875. And this was also, in essence, an anti-Buddhist measure, even though it was put into effect with one of the goals being to protect public health from crematory smoke. What's interesting is that an anti-cremation stance had developed during the Tokugawa period among both Confucian and nativist scholars, but they couldn't ban it under the Tokugawa regime. However, in the spring of 1873, the Tokyo police sent a proposal to the Justice Ministry to remove cremation grounds from the capital into the suburbs because of the concern about crematory smoke. So the Justice Ministry takes up this proposal and then turns to the Council of State and the Council of State decides, well, if we agree to moving these crematories out of the city, this, in effect, gives de facto approval right, for cremation in general. So we're saying move it, but by moving these crematories, right, we're, we're not opposing cremation per se. So then the Council of State turns to the Ministry of Doctrine, which was controlled by these uh radical Shintoists or nativists. And the Ministry of Doctrine basically says, look, we need to just ban cremation entirely. So a ban across the nation goes into effect, and this caused a lot of distress, especially among adherents of a Buddhist sect called Jodo Shinshu, which by and large encouraged the cremation of its members and also had a major impact on people living in urban areas. Uh, Cremation was a convenient way to save space at burial sites. So this was an extremely unpopular policy, as we see in petitions to the government and in articles appearing in recently created newspapers. And I think what's interesting here is that in order to preserve cremation, or rather rehabilitate cremation, the people who were against the ban basically turned the government's arguments to their own advantage. So the government justified the cremation ban in two ways. One, that it was considered unfilial to burn the bodies of the dead, and in particular of one's parents. And two, 
that crematory smoke was unhygienic and therefore right banning cremation would protect right the, the health of of the citizenry. The pro-cremation folks or the anti-ban folks, you can call them, they said, actually, look, cremation is a filial practice because by reducing dead bodies to bones and ash, you could conveniently keep them together in ancestral graves. So let's say a family member moved from a village to another location and died in the location. If you cremated the person, you could bring that person back and bury that person in a family grave. So actually, cremation could be the more filial option when thinking about how to dispose of a dead body. Also, they argued that, in fact, it was more hygienic to burn bodies than to place rotting corpses in the ground where they can contaminate groundwater. And interestingly, they invoked the fact that in England and the U.S. and and other places in what was considered to be the civilized West, right, this model for a modernizing Japan, that there there were societies to promote cremation. And that, in fact, according to some, cremation was spreading as a practice. In reality, these pro-cremation groups in England and elsewhere were marginal. And cremation didn't really take off in the U.S. and in Europe until the uh, 20th century. But the West was used in this very strategic way to pursue this goal of preserving cremation. So this reimagining of cremation in modern terms of hygiene, in fact, served to preserve a tradition, or rather, again, to revive a tradition that had just been recently banned. So that's what I mean by in the Meiji period, in this time of rapid change, people willing to take on something new, in this case, this new idea of preserving public health, right, this new concern for hygiene, and using it to preserve or revive an older way of doing things. So that's just one example. I could give numerous other ones <laughs> concerning death rituals. In the long term, I guess I'll give one more example. This doesn't involve government policy, but involves the modernization of society that followed the major restoration. So after the turn of the century, street traffic became more and more of a problem. You had streetcars and automobiles and so forth. So this made it extremely difficult to have funeral processions, which were extremely popular in big cities and elsewhere. However, even though processions came to an end because of all the street traffic, right, it was inconvenient to have to constantly stop and start. There was a new understanding of streets as thoroughfares right, that shouldn't be blocked in any way. Because of this, funerals became more stationary. And in the process, these elaborate altars came to be built that hadn't really existed before. And these altars actually had become more and more elaborate over time, involving flowers and carvings and so forth. So we see this development of the funeral altar as something new as we move into the 20th century. But it functioned 
to display the status of the mourning family in just the same way. Well, not just the same way, but similarly to how the procession was used to assert the status of the mourning family. So that's more of a long-term kind of change that wasn't the result of a direct government policy, but was the result of the modernization that was kicked off, one could say, by the Meiji Restoration. Thinking about these funerary practices as invented traditions, I understand your more recent research has kind of focused on another invented tradition, and, and that is Mount Fuji. And I understand this comes to encompass much of your teaching and research even. And before we talk about that, can you talk about how you made this switch more into Mount Fuji, something that seems very divorced from funerary practices? Yeah, well, I wanted to transcend death. <laughs> how better to do that than to focus on this beautiful mountain? So in the course of doing my research for Modern Passings, I learned about the policies that the Meiji state put into place to deal with graveyards and also temple and shrine land more generally. So I originally thought I would write a book concerning land use policy and its effect on temple and shrine lands, not just graveyards, but temple and shrine lands in general in the Meiji period, and then also look at land reform in the occupation period under the U.S. occupation after World War II and see how these changes reflected and contributed to new ideas about the relationship between religion and the state. So when I was in Japan, I went to the National Diet Library and there went to the room where they keep occupation records. And I just started looking through files on microfilm concerning U.S. occupation policy as it regarded the property of shrines and temples. Of course, in doing that, I came across a folder which contained documents concerning this strange battle over who owned the top of Fuji, a Shinto shrine at the base or the Japanese government. This wasn't an issue before World War II because shrine property was considered state property, right? So the summit of Fuji could be both the shrines and the states at one and the same time. However, with the U.S. occupation, there was a mandated separation of Shinto and the state, more broadly religion and the state. So suddenly there was a problem. How do we deal with all these sites around the country that are claimed by shrines or temples, yet were also considered state property. So for example, you could have a mountain that's considered a deity by a particular religious institution. So does that institution have the right to that mountain or, or just a, a small part of it and the state gets to claim the rest? Right? These were questions that faced the Japanese government during and right after the occupation. So to make a long story short, <laughs> there was a big debate <laughs> over who owns the top of Mount Fuji. In the end, after debates in the Diet, protests in the streets of Tokyo, after court cases right, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Japan, 
the Supreme Court in 1974 decided that, in fact, the summit of Mount Fuji, except for a couple of areas, like one spot on the summit used for a weather station, aside from those spots, the summit of Fuji was, in fact, the property of the Shinto shrine that worshipped Fuji as a deity. So that's how I came to Fuji, right? Sort of the oblique, I took this oblique path and I kept learning more and more and more. I abandoned the other project and decided, you know, I'm actually now more interested in learning about Fuji as a both a physical actor and also as an object in people's imagination as it developed over time. And now I'm covering tens of thousands of years, <laughs> going back into geological history up to now to show how Fuji has transformed. And I, I've been describing this book to people as a, a sort of biography of Mount Fuji. Um, my dad calls it my wackadoo project because <laughs> it uh, covers just so much ground, right? It's, it's kind of nuts to cover. Today, many people would consider Mount Fuji to be the national symbol of Japan. And, and speaking of the shrines, there's this very famous photo of the Arakura Yamasengen shrine, the, the famous pagoda in front of Fuji. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, this graces so many tourist images of Japan. Mm-hmm. But how is it that Fuji becomes that national symbol? Was it always seen as Japan's national mountain? Or is that something that develops over those 10,000 years? <laughs> that right, right. So it certainly develops over over time. I would say it's in the Tokugawa period that Fuji doesn't become a national symbol, but it becomes a beloved meisho or famous place within the cultural landscape of Japan. And in that sense, it's nationalized. If you think of Beth Berry's observation in her book, Japan in Print, that Tokugawa Japan was a nation without nationalism. I think that we can see Fuji as a beloved mountain of the nation, but without a kind of nationalism in which it signifies a Japan set against the rest of the world. So it's part of this national imagination constructed through domestic tourism in Japan in the Tokugawa period, pilgrimage as tourism in the case of Fuji and other sacred mountains, other sacred sites. And also it it spread through objects of everyday life. In the Tokugawa period, Fuji appeared on combs, on clothing, (laughs) on the noren, the, the little curtains in front of storefronts. Also, there were the woodblock prints of uh, artists like Hiroshige and Hokusai, right, that celebrated Fuji. So by the time we get to the Meiji Restoration, Fuji was certainly a beloved mountain of Japan, but it wasn't, I would say, the national symbol in the way that we see after the Restoration. So then what happens after the Restoration that really centralizes Mount Fuji as a national symbol? Right. Well, some of this was actively pushed by government officials themselves. So I looked at government-approved textbooks, for example, from the Meiji period, and Fuji appears regularly in them. 
specifically as really the pride of Japan, right? The symbol of the nation in a global context. What also comes to mind is a songbook that the education ministry put out in 1881. In it is a song called Fujisan. And part of it goes something like, foreigners gaze up admiringly. So do Japanese. Fuji is our pride. And it was set to a tune uh, composed by Haydn, actually. <laughs> Which I think really beautifully sums up <laughs> the spirit of Meiji, right? Using Haydn to celebrate what seemed to be a quintessentially Japanese place. So here we see this very self-conscious characterization of Fuji as a national symbol in the eyes of not only Japanese, but foreigners. So this is the nation with nationalism, you could say. And that's when Fuji truly becomes a national symbol. And I should say, this is not just the work of government officials putting out songs and textbooks, but in the media, we see this trend take hold as well. To the point that Natsume Soseki, in his novel Sanshiro from 1908, pokes fun at this, right? Pokes fun at people's obsession with Fuji as this pride of Japan. In the novel, on a train ride to Tokyo, one of the main characters, uh, this Professor Hirota, Riley says that Fuji is the best thing that Japan has to offer, but the trouble is it's just a natural object. So really the Japanese can't take credit for it, right? So, um, anyway, uh, so I think that that shows just to what extent really by the early 20th century, Fuji as, as truly this national symbol, the symbol of national pride in a global context has taken hold. And then in the post-war, it gets kind of recast as a symbol of, of peaceful Japan as well, which is, is kind of ironic when you note, as you've written about, much of the land surrounding Mount Fuji is actually artillery proving grounds. Right, right. If anything, Fuji's connection with warfare has intensified <laughs> since uh, the end of the war. Yeah, so, so after the war, Fuji as a national symbol was easier to rehabilitate than, let's say, the um, flag of Japan, the, the rising sun flag, for example, and other symbols that were concocted by the imperial state. Because even though it was appropriated by the imperial state in many ways, it did appear in some wartime propaganda, for example, it preceded right the imperial state and could therefore right be recast as this new symbol of peace, right? symbol of a new Japan that was connected back to an older Japan <laughs> that preceded, right, the imperial period. However, as you were just saying, military training grounds or, or places for military exercises right, are located right around the base of Fuji. And this is because of the large grasslands there. So these grasslands are really the largest in Japan outside of Hokkaido, and they're conveniently pretty close to Tokyo, which makes, makes them useful terrain for artillery practice and other military exercises. 
And the militarization of these grasslands did occur during the imperial period. So in the 1890s, the military saw these grasslands and figured, okay, this is a really convenient place to hold military exercises. But these grasslands were held in common by villagers in the area. So they had to negotiate with these people who had common land rights to have access to these grasslands, which people were using for fodder for horses, thatch for roofs, and so forth. And so they had to enter these deals, for example, agreeing to let local villagers collect artillery shells to sell the scrap metal. Also, villagers insisted on being able to collect the manure of imperial army horses to be used as fertilizer. So this interesting relationship developed in which villagers maintained the grasslands as grasslands, and the government got to use them in exchange for these, are based on these conditions. So the military uses these grasslands, again, for military exercises through the war. And then what happens with the U.S. occupation? The U.S. military takes over. (laughs) And there's still a U.S. military presence there to this day. There's a Marine base called Camp Fuji, right, right there at the base of Fuji. Although now most of it is used by the Japanese self-defense forces after the U.S. occupation right, control of this land reverted back to the Japanese government, even though the U.S. does still have a military presence there today. So yeah, symbolically speaking, Fuji gets transformed into this symbol of a new peaceful Japan. However, materially speaking, right, it provides this terrain for military exercises. And in fact, every summer, there are these huge military exercises that are open to the public. I refer to them as militainment, people witnessing artillery practice, helicopters whizzing overhead and so forth. Kind of live fire drills, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and these are these are kind of hot ticket items I was reading in the Times. They were talking about how tickets are selling out and it's kind of a popular pastime now to go see the live fire drills during the summer. Oh, yeah. 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 Like I said, militainment, right? Right there. <laughs> I was going to ask how many times you've climbed Mount Fuji, but I understand you also take a class to Mount Fuji every summer where you actually take students and, and study the history of the mountain and climb the mountain. Yeah, well, not every summer. I've led a program twice along with a geologist who's a colleague, a colleague of mine, uh, Lewis and Clark. So we led a, or created and led Mount Fuji study abroad program in 2014. And again, in 2017, those two times. And the program lasted for seven weeks and focused on Mount Fuji in this interdisciplinary fashion. So students learned about Fuji's volcanism, history as a pilgrimage site. We climbed to the summit from the base, not from the fifth station, as as most people do. We stayed at an old pilgrimage inn. We participated in religious rituals. Also, we visited a toilet paper factory to learn about how spring water originating from Fuji is used to make toilet paper, right? So they come to understand Fuji from all angles and how the economics, the politics, right, the religious beliefs and so forth, and the geology and so forth all mutually influence each other, that often these things are studied separately, right? But 
in real life that are all interacting. One of the things that comes up in the media every once in a while is lamentations about how how much garbage is on Fuji and how it's so overrun with tourists and, and hikers and how this is problematic because Fuji is a sacred space in Japan. Is that something that you came across with your students as you were climbing? Yeah, well, actually, a lot of headway has been made to clean up Fuji right, uh, from the fifth station up. People tend to climb from the fifth station. And there have been campaigns over the past couple decades to teach people that they should not litter. Also, bio toilets, right, these ecologically responsible toilets that have been installed going up the mountains. So in terms of litter and pollution, that wasn't so obvious. However, in the summer months, Fuji is extremely crowded, that's for sure. My students who were used to tromping out in the woods in the Pacific Northwest right, without encountering many people, right, getting away from it all, we're kind of shocked by the traffic jam that we encountered when we were trying to walk up Fuji. I think about 300,000 people climb Fuji in July and August every year. So it is overrun, but I think a lot of headway has been made, actually, to clean things up from the fifth station up. Now, this doesn't mean that people around the base of Fuji don't dispose of refrigerators and microwaves and what have you by the sides of the road, right? So that's still a problem. And there's this organization called the Fuji-san Club that we worked with during our program that has these cleanup campaigns, right, to pick up trash and cast off consumer items from the woods at the base of Fuji. I keep saying that one of these days I'll have to climb Mount Fuji. I can't make a, a lifetime of studying Japan without climbing Mount Fuji once. You got to do it once, right? Though in Japan they they say you should climb Fuji once, but only a fool climbs it twice, which I guess <laughs> makes me a fool ten times over at this point. <laughs> the Meiji at One Fifty podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>